once again to the Classic English Literature Subcast, streamed for bonus episodes and very interesting sidebars. Before today's little sidebar, I'd like to give a great warm thank you to loyal listener Braden. Thanks for your very generous contribution to the show, and thank you especially for your time and attention. All of you who listen, I'd ask you to subscribe to the show if you haven't, and follow it on all fine social media platforms. As I was reading around for the most recent episode of the podcast, that's the one on early English drama, in case you missed it, I was reminded that Chaucer's The Miller's Tale, from the Canterbury Tales, makes some rather intriguing allusions to the mystery plays, particularly the plays Noah and the Flood and Herod the Great with perhaps a soup song of the Annunciation and the Fall of Man. Now, in the Canterbury Tales, right after the general prologue, the knight tells the first story, and then the rude, drunken miller says he will, quote, quit the knight with a story of his own. But, he cautions, an ache men shall not make an earnest of gamma. And also, men should not take jokes too seriously, basically. But the word game here does double duty, meaning not only a joke or a trick, but, apropos of this little sidebar, a play. If you're not familiar with the Miller's Tale, it's a type called a fablio, which originated in France, but it became quite popular in England during the 14th century. Fablio were short verse tales, satirical, coarsely humorous, usually scatological if not obscene, that offered a lively representation of everyday social life. The characters were usually drawn from the lower middle or the working class. There's usually an exceptionally gullible dupe victimized by a trickster figure. Sex, violence, deceit, and avarice get their farcical treatment here. But nothing too serious ever really results from the hijinks. It's just a game. The Miller's Tale revolves around the character of John the Carpenter, his young wife, Allison. (laughs) It's a familiar name. And a young scholar named Nicholas, who rents a room with them. Nicholas the Spark, who knows astrology and sings just loverly, falls in lust with Allison and conspires with her to trick John into believing a great flood is coming so that they can have sex. He convinces John to build three wooden tubs and hang them from the roof of their house so that they can survive the flood by floating away on them. Late that night, when John falls asleep in the tub, Nicholas and Allison romp the night away. However, Absalom, a parish clerk who is also in love with Allison, but whom Allison finds vile, comes to her window and asks for a kiss. Allison agrees. Quote, and out of the window out she potter her hole, and Absalon him fill no bet ner wares, but with his mouth he kissed her naked airs. And at the window out she put her hole, and Absalon, for better or worse, with his mouth he kissed her naked ass. Absalom is mortified. But he gets his revenge when Nicholas tries to repeat the jape by burning the scholar's farting posterior with a red-hot poker. 
Nicholas is screaming, wakens John, who falls from the tub, breaking his arm. The townspeople come to see what all the hubbub is, and they're amused when they hear the story of the flood. It's not a complex tale. It's a bit gross, but it can raise a chuckle. But Chaucer makes a point on several occasions of referencing the scriptural plays that, at the end of the 1300s, were just on the cultural rise. This story feels a bit crude for any spiritual gratification. Certainly, we get that Nicholas uses a great flood story to cuckold his landlord. So, if Noah's flood was to wipe out sin, Nicholas's flood is to revel in it. Okay, haha. But I think Chaucer is cleverer than this mere reversal. In the Chester play of Noah's Flood, we get a creditable retelling of the Genesis myth. Noah is good and faithful, his sons loyal, and his wife, far and away the most interesting and famous character, is a nagging shrew. And I reckon it's the wife that Chaucer is most interested in. Medieval patriarchal attitudes, inherited from ancient traditions, would find Mrs. Noah's attitudes unnatural. She's a figure for horrified mockery. She vehemently resists entering the ark, defying her husband and her sons, and indeed God himself, because she does not wish to abandon her friends, her, quote, gossips. Now, the word gossip is a contraction of the old English word for God-sibling. You know, like we might have God-brothers, God-sisters, God-mothers, God-fathers. A God-sibling was the woman who assisted you in childbirth. She was your closest companion, closest female friend. Now, as the waters come on, the gossips propose a final drink together before they perish. Quote, The flood comes fleeting in full fast on every side that spreadeth full far. For fear of drowning, I am aghast. Good gossip, let us draw near, and let us drink ere we depart. And oftentimes now we have done so. For at one draft thou drink a quart, and so will I do ere I go. And Noah's wife responds, Here's a pottle of Malmsey, good and strong. It will rejoice both heart and tongue, though Noah think us never so long, yet we will drink a taita. So, the word gossip here connotes a quite strong emotional bond, and Mrs. Noah is angered by being forced by men to reject that bond. She asserts her independence, even to the point of striking her husband, who meekly accepts her rage. Quote, Noah, welcome wife into the boat. Noah's wife, slapping him, have that thou for thy note. Noah, aha, Mary, this is hot. It is good for to be still. Now Chaucer's twist on Noah's wife, Allison, plays on a similar, if more base, theme. We are clearly told that she is young, beautiful, and vivacious. Chaucer often uses young animal metaphors for her, especially, curiously, Colt. And she's plainly ill-matched to the aged and bumbling John the Carpenter. Chaucer writes, quote, This carpenter had a wedded Noah a weefa, which that he loved a more than his leaf. At eighteen year she was of age, jealous he was, and healed a hair an hour in a cage. For she was wilder and young, and hair was old, and damned himself been like a cockwold. He knew not Caton, 
for his wit was rude that bad men should wed his similitude. Men should wedden after here a start, for youth and elder is often at debat. This carpenter had wedded recently a new wife which he loved more than his life. Of eighteen years she was of age, and jealous he was, and held her narrowly, as if in a cage, for she was wild and young, and he was old, and he thought himself likely to be a cuckold. He knew not Cato, for his wit was rude, that said men should wed their similitude. Men should wed after their estate, for youth and age is often at debate. John knows that Allison resists him, that she prefers someone like the young, handsome, wily Nicholas, and accepts his advances after only token resistance, though it's still troubling. His first advance is clearly what we would see as a, uh, as a Trumpian sexual assault. She rebukes him, but acquiesces immediately after. Mm. When John enters his ark, the tubs, She does not go. Rather, she stays with Nicholas for a little sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Chaucer uses John as kind of a diminished Noah. He renders Noah's faith and patience as instead gullibility and cuckoldry. Nicholas also, in some ways, performs knowledge, making a great deal of his studies and his insights. And his literacy seems totemized by John, who is unlettered. Remember, he never read Cato. The carpenter has not read the Genesis text. He wants desperately for his wife to join him in the life-preserving tub. But he can be tricked because he only knows the mystery play rendering of Noah's wife. And the mockery that Noah endures from his community while building the ark is mirrored by the town's mockery of John's humiliation and injuries. If we squint, We can also glimpse callbacks to other mystery plays like the Annunciation, in which Nicholas takes the Gabriel role, Allison that of Mary, heavily layered in irony, I would say, and John as Joseph, who would believe that his pregnant fiancée has not been messing about, so faith cast once again as credulity. Or we can see the Garden of Eden, too, with Allison as Eve, less ironic, I suppose, and Nicholas as the tempter, the serpent, on the nose there a bit. Absalom, the young clerk lover, offers another allusion to the mystery plays. He, too, is a performer, a musician, and singer. Indeed, he's an actor, too. Chaucer tells us that he had played Herod on the stage. Quote, Some teamer to show his leeknesse and maestry, he playeth Herodus upon the scaffold here. Sometimes, to show his lightness and mastery, he played Herod upon the high scaffold. Some listeners may be reminded of Hamlet's famous complaint to his actors that overacting, quote, out Herod's Herod. He draws on the common association of the mystery plays Herod as a ranting madman. But Hamlet does Herod a little dirty here. Throughout the mystery cycles, we can see that Herod actually emerges as a fairly complex character, of the kind of round psychological characterization that Chaucer would develop with the partner and the wife of Bath, and of which Shakespeare would, of course, prove to be the consummate master. The play Herod the Great from the Wakefield cycle, but maybe even earlier from the York, there may be an earlier version, 
retells the visit of the Magi, the three wise men, to the Christ child, and then the slaughter of the innocents, Herod's massacre of children to thwart his usurpation. Now, to play Herod flatly, we certainly get the overheated villain, jealous, ruthless, vindictive, and it's a character that begs to be heckled by the audience. This sort of thing obviously develops into playing Herod for laughs, somewhat minimizing his evil in favor of comic effect. So we end up with a rather strange character, one who is comic for his blusterous tirades, and one who is perhaps tragically cursed by a madness, jealousy, that he is powerless to control. Now, when hearing the prophecy, he admits, quote, I anger, and I wot not what devil me ailis. I am angry, and I don't know the devil that ails me. At the conclusion of the play, when the murder of 144,000 children puts his mind to rest, he says, quote, Thus shall I teach knaves, and sample to take, and their wittest that raves such mastery to make. This way I will teach knaves, give them an example. If their wits rave, this is how you master them. Now, I in no way intend us to feel any sympathy for this guy. But these lines add the potential for a dramatic dynamism to the character. So, okay, what's it mean that Absalom has played Herod on the scaffold high? Well, we got the jealousy, yes, obviously. The over-the-topness inherent in the character, yes. Josser gives us quite lengthy description of Absalom's foppery and pretensions. But I never really felt he deserved the humiliating treatment he gets in the tale. Yes, he's a bit twee, but he doesn't manhandle Allison as Nicholas does, and yet Allison constantly rejects him. In fact, we can certainly see in him Chaucer's ribbing of the courtly love manner. You know, in fact, uh, the miller tells his tale as a crude, remember, counterpoint to the knight's preceding lofty romance. Absalom serenades Allison beneath her window. Quote, He singeth in his voice gentle and small, Now, dear lady, if there will be, I pray you that you will a rule on me. He sings in his gentle and quiet voice, Now, dear lady, if it be your will, I pray you that you would be true to me. Straight out of the troubadour's guide to wooing. But, alas, Allison loves the bad boy. Quote, She loveth so this handy Nicholas that Absalom they blow the buckus horn. He na had a for his labor but to scorn, and thus she maketh Absalom here a ape and I'll his earnest turneth till a japa. She loves so this handy Nicholas, that Absalom may blow the buck's horn. He hadn't for his labor anything but scorn, and so she made Absalom her ape, and all his earnestness turned to a jape. So it's the earnestness that turns her off. Uh, Absalom can blow the buck's horn. Now, I know we have talked uh, on many occasions referenced on many occasions the farting buck of the cuckoo song and his heralding of spring. And I think, <laughs> you know, Absalom, he gets, uh, he gets farted on. And he can also blow the buck's horn, which was an idiom at the time, which means, you know, he, you, can, you can go whistle, you can go jump in the lake, you know, uh, some kind of futile 
action. Um, and he gets nothing for it. But it's because he's too intense. He's too much. He's too performative. In fact, like Herod, he seems possessed of a kind of madness. He pines for her night and day. You know, the classic courtly love lover. You know, he's obsessive, woebegone. Absalom out Herod's Herod. She responds much more readily to Nicholas's raw physicality. Nick acts while Absalom performs, if you see my distinction. So, the Miller's Tale is just chock full of performance tropes, from actual allusions to plays to the fact that the young men are musicians and scholars, that those same young men also perform to deceive, to the very notion that the Miller himself performs the tale he tells, right? He's telling the story orally, at least within the narrative frame, and very probably most 14th century people heard the tale as an oral performance, a reading. You know, in the Miller's tale, it's games all the way down. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you later.